Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Scraps. It's our podcast dedicated to bringing you the fun, frightening, and fantastic stories behind some of the world's most interesting scientific innovations. We always appreciate your support of Scraps, and I'm shamelessly going to ask you to go two steps further, and I'll ask you to sign up for episode alerts at scrapsofbrilliance.com, and then to rate us and review us on your favorite podcast platform. This is the best way for us to reach new listeners and to keep the show going. I'm Jojo Platt, and as always, the ever-ebullient Arun Sridhar is here with me. Our guest today is Kate Rosenbluth, founder of Cala Health. And just a little bit of background here, uh, essential tremor, and we'll call it ET for short, is a neurological condition that causes shaking of the hands, sometimes the head and the voice. Uh, it's often confused with Parkinson's disease, but it's not a condition that restricts itself to the elderly. Um, some re researchers estimate that between 4 and 5% of people between the ages of 40 and 60 already have ET. It was previously called benign tremor, but after recognizing the severity of decline in the quality of life, they appropriately dropped the word benign. Um, the first line therapy for ET tends to be a drug therapy, either propran propranolol or primidone or a combination of the two. And unfortunately, as with most drugs, they carry side effects. They aren't always effective and they can dilute or be difficult to tolerate. Sadly, the second line treatment is also a pharma solution. So after one fails or can't tolerate the drug cocktails or the Botox injections, DBS finally gets its date in court. And while it can certainly be effective, DBS isn't right for everyone, and it requires a surgical procedure which can intimidate many potential candidates. So enters Kate Rosenbluth. And during her time at the Stanford Biodesign Program, she determined that these baits should not be the only choices for this growing population. Cala Health's TRIO device is, a, is pioneering new treatments that have truly advanced the way we look at bioelectronic medicines, as well as the potential and capabilities of wearable devices. Fortune Magazine rightly recognized Kate on their 2020 list of 40 under 40. She's a neuroscientist and an engineer. She's raised over $80 million in private funding for Kala, and she's launched a product that will change the outcomes, lives, and activities of millions of people. We're honored to have you on Scraps today, Kate. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the great introduction and looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Kate. Welcome to the show again from my side. Um, I think let's actually maybe start from the very early days in your scientific journey. Um, because I think you've spoken publicly about Kala and, and the product and everything, but there is an untold story, or at least most people don't know that side of you, the personal side of, of Kate Rosenblut. So would you be kind enough to share with us how you came to do what you did? Because a small kind of PubMed search from me, kind of at least based on your work at UCSF, looked like you were working on drug delivery platforms uh, to the brain and not necessarily in neuromodulation, so to speak. So it'll be a fantastic listen uh, to actually have you say all of all of these um, various steps that you've taken in your life. 
Thanks, Maya. Scientific journey has certainly been a meandering one uh, that converged ultimately in in what became Cala Health. And uh, thanks, Jojo, for the the wonderful introduction there. Um, I'll go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, so I was born uh, in Toronto, Canada. My mother was a musician. She was a classical pianist and record producer. And my father was a professor of neurosociology at the University of Toronto. Uh, he really focused on the neuroscientific underpinnings of major social drivers like economic investment, religion. Just recently, he actually published on COVID. Um, and it's wonderful how our academic interests have woven back together as I dove into the field of neuroscience. Um, he and my mom actually met at a Dylan party that was at the University of Toronto. Uh, it was a party that he thought was quite obviously for Bob Dylan. And my mom arrived thinking it was for the poet Dylan Thomas. <laughs> so they hit it off and eventually uh, I came along. Um, my grandfather was an architect uh, in the modernist movement. Um, he loved when I was growing up uh, regaling us with stories about, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's antics. Um, like I remember a, a dinner at Falling Water, uh, one of his famous houses, where someone pointed out that the water was leaking through the ceiling and dripping onto their plate. And he said, oh, so you should probably move. <laughs> um, so I, I really uh, in high school, you know, I spent many long hours um, putting tiny roof shingles and pathway pavers, you know, onto the models at his architectural firm. Um, and also learning what was at the time very early CAD, computer-aided design. Um, I was set on becoming an architect uh, like him, really following in his footsteps. Uh, I saw architecture as a perfect convergence of math, physics, and art, and really being a place where innovation actually made lives better, Yeah, where you take things like math and science and, you know, apply them for the betterment of humanity. Yeah. And I'd really say sort of at the time, I didn't really see areas like biology as, or neuroscience as places for innovation like I do today, where I think that they are some of the most exciting fields for really radical innovation. So after that, um, my, my father was actually born and raised in California in one of the uh, neighborhoods up in Sacramento, really built on the GI Bill after the Second World War. Um, and for for college, I came out to California. I did my undergraduate at Stanford University. Mm. Stanford didn't have a pre-architecture program, so I studied mechanical engineering. Wow. And in my, in my freshman year, uh, I received a small diversity grant for women in engineering uh, from Dr. Noe Lozano, really one of the national leaders, I would say, in, in promoting diversity in engineering. I visited a few research labs um, and I was absolutely enthralled by a project in the laboratory of Dr. Uh, Professor Scott Delp. So if you fast forward to today, uh, Scott Delp is actually my co-founder at Cala Health. But we didn't start working on neuromodulation. We started working together on dinosaurs and ostriches. Um, <laughs> and that is one aspect of Scott that I don't think many people actually know. So yeah. this is this is fantastic just listening to that story. Because um, so, I actually know Scott from all of his biomedical engineering work and publications. So Scott Scott is just an incredible uh, you know scientific innovator uh, leader in in the field of bioengineering. 
He was one of the founders of the bioengineering program uh, at Stanford. And his research has really spanned everything from musculoskeletal modeling. Uh, he actually started a company that became um, the uh, Motion Analysis uh, Corporation that does a lot of the um, AR and V work, VR work behind uh, things like the animation industry, you know, movies like Avatar, et cetera. Um, he also today is well recognized as a leader in the field of optogenetics, um, which we'll get to. That was really my transition from drug delivery to your earlier question over to neuromodulation was through gene therapy for optogenetics. So for light based excitation of the nervous system. Um, at the time when I met Scott, when I was a freshman, um, my first task was to, to measure every muscle uh, and insertion in an ostrich limb. Um, this ostrich was literally so big that we first weighed it on a scrapyard-like scale. Uh, we weighed a truck with the ostrich in the bed, then took the ostrich off the bed of the truck and weighed it again and took the difference. <laughs> and that was the official measurement of the ostrich's weight. So while the work was really, you know, stinky and tiresome, I also thought it was absolutely fascinating. I, I was hooked. I couldn't believe I could actually get paid for doing um, work that was this much fun. Uh, the, the, the team that uh, Scott and I were working with at the time, uh, John Hutchinson is now a professor of evolutionary biomechanics at the Royal Veterinary College in England. Uh, professor Rob Siston at Ohio State um, there's just, I mean, there's just such a, a wonderful uh, um, sort of world and team based around uh, the graduates of Scott's lab uh, in building out that field. And to be clear, the work wasn't all about ostriches. Um, turns out ostriches have about the same limb dimensions as humans. And the lab was developing technologies for musculoskeletal models to help kids with diseases like cerebral palsy to walk better. So building individualized models uh, and then testing things like if you did a tendon reinsertion surgery, if you moved the location of the muscle, how would that change the child's gait? Yeah. Um, I'd also say thinking back on that time of undergrad uh, that, you know, Stanford was really steeped in an, an entrepreneurial culture. Uh, you could really dream of changing the world, uh, surrounded by stories like Hewlett and Packard, um, Google's astronomical growth uh, was really around uh, that time. It went public right around when I graduated. Um, I remember in the spring of 2003 uh, using FaceMash, which was Mark Zuckerberg's precursor to what became Facebook. Um, and just, you know, really thinking about some of these new technologies, what was possible. Uh, I spent the summer of my senior year working at a strange little startup uh, called Epoch Innovations. Uh, you've probably never heard of it because it quickly crashed and burned. <laughs> um, but it really was my first uh, introduction, or I suppose from my father, reintroduction uh, to neuroscience, um, as well as the culture of innovation and failure. Uh, Epoch was way ahead of its time. It was using heart rate variability as biofeedback for treating dyslexia. Oh, wow. Okay. Way before even people kind of now use heart rate variability for closed loop kind of feedback on on many different therapies and identification. Wow, which year was this, Kate? So this would this would have uh, the company I, I believe got started around uh, two thousand two. Um, okay. So it was a couple years in uh, when I was working there in two thousand four. Um, it was actually technology that was licensed in from some really brilliant uh, Israeli scientists. And then the company was built um, 
by some of the uh, what what people call the PayPal mafia. So Epoch's chief financial officer was Keith Raboy, um, who then went on to um, Square, etc. Um, and and you know Keith, uh, Elon Musk, uh, SpaceX, and Tesla. Um, there was a group of people who really came out of that PayPal world uh, and just have had a huge impact, you know, on innovation. So among other things, you know, even though Epoch Innovation itself failed, um, I'd say it, it really introduced me to that idea sort of of fail fast, yeah. of you're going to try and change the world. Just be really fearless um, about keeping truly focused on, you know, people's lives, on making their lives better. And don't be afraid to go out there uh, and fail. Um, I think of it as uh, Thomas Edison's uh, quote. Uh, what did he say? He said, uh, if I if I've succeeded, it's because I failed a thousand times. Yeah. And what I loved about working at Epoch was their very their Epoch Innovations was that culture of you know try it, learn, uh, keep moving, keep picking yourself up. So I'd say after that summer, I was pretty hooked on neuroscience and the brain, and figuring out better ways that we could use emerging technologies. Uh, like wearables, like the integration of computing uh, with neuroscience in order to deliver uh, better therapies. Yeah. So around yeah. that time, yeah, go ahead. No, that actually took you to UCSF then. It did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that actually took me to Berkeley first. So um, around that time, I, I met a, a, a very special boy, now my husband, who's also a med tech entrepreneur. Uh, and an incredible father to our two kids who are uh, seven and nine. Um, he was at Berkeley. So I hopped across the bay to start a PhD there uh, in mechanical engineering. Uh, Berkeley was also where my father had been a student back in its 1969 heydays. So, uh, Berkeley life, eh? <laughs> exactly. Um, I started at Berkeley in a really interesting research group under the leadership of uh, Dr. Paul Wright. Uh, I worked on energy harvesting from piezoelectrics, uh, working on adapted, basically um, a, a, adaptations of distributed what were called smart dust networks, that self-powered, self-assembling networks off uh, vibration. So this was technology first introduced in fields like manufacturing, where there's a lot of heat and vibration uh, in the plants, and you could use a distributed smart network to monitor that. Um, or things like uh, um, these sensors tumbling in streams uh, for doing environmental monitoring. And what I wanted to do was use them for implanted medical sensors for brain diseases. The research center had a fantastic and very memorable name. It was called Citrus, like the fruit. And it stood for the Center for Information Technology Research in the Interest of Society. <laughs> That's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. Someone must have been very happy when they had their Scrabble letters out and put them together and wrote the word uh, citrus. So I loved uh, I loved that intersection of uh, medical and technology research, but quickly ran up against the problem that Berkeley didn't have a medical school. So I switched PhD programs into bioengineering, which was the only joint program between UCSF, which had a world-class medical school just across the bay, so that I could basically match courses in electrical engineering at Berkeley with courses like brain, mind, and behavior at UCSF. So you can see where this is starting to head towards um, what became a career in neuromodulation. Um, I joined the laboratory of uh, Dr. Sarah Nelson. Uh, she sadly just recently actually passed away after a uh, valiant battle with one of the cancers that she'd studied. 
Um, she was really a pioneer in the field of magnetic resonance uh, spectroscopy, uh, which was an emerging field sort of within magnetic resonance imaging MRI. Um, as sort of a, a, a fun aside uh, explaining what we were doing in spectroscopy, uh, MRI was basically invented by uh, incredibly uh, brilliant, but also incredibly lazy uh, graduate student. So he was tasked with performing magnetic spectral analysis on hundreds of test tubes, a very manual and laborious process requiring loading each one into a magnetic spectrometer. But he realized that if he lined up 10 of them in a row and put a magnetic gradient across them, he could use a Fourier analysis to extract the 10 spectra at once. And then he realized that he could make a 10 by 10 grid of test tubes. And then he realized he could make a 10 by 10 cube of test tubes. And all of a sudden he was doing, you know, a thousand test tubes at, a, at once. So basically the idea of magnetic resonance spectroscopy is to reimagine each tiny location in the brain, each, you know, 3D pixel, often called a voxel, sort of as a tiny, tiny test tube. And then to use the information about chemicals like choline, creatine, and lipids to non-invasively uh, detect brain disease to study things like uh, cancer metabolism. So when I joined in 2004, um, Sarah had just installed one of the, the world's first seven Tesla MRI scanners. Uh, this thing was huge. Uh, it was so large and unshielded that they literally had to build the building around it. <laughs> um, but it offered incredible resolution down to about a third of a millimeter or just a few you know, human hairs, uh, which was incredibly exciting for the study of uh, brain disease. Before we were you know, allowed to put a human in it, um, we had to do a lot of painstaking work on optimizing pulse sequences and coils, um, a lot of electrical engineering. You're almost taking me back to a biophysics degree when I actually learned about principles of NMR and MRI, actually. That's oh. fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and, uh, and, and, and networks of tiny little or arrays of test tubes in the brain. <laughs> um, so around that time, actually, you, 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 you might really uh, enjoy this then. Uh, we weren't allowed to put humans yet in the magnet, uh, but we had to do all of that work. And so I remember thinking, you know, there's got to be a way to make this a lot more fun uh, than imaging phantoms, which are, you know, balls of saline. So I started pouring over the, um, the fruit and vegetable aisles at our local Mexican and Chinese grocery stores. And, you know, picking the oddest looking but roughly head-sized uh, specimens, leaving them to rot at home <laughs> so that their insides got nice and interesting. Uh, no and then, way. <laughs> and then imaging them in the scanner. Oh, boy. So, so as a pro tip, uh, anything of the watermelon family is uh, particularly fabulous. Uh, because you know, it actually uh, has so much fluids and therefore you actually have quite a bit of kind of opaqueness to it in the MRI. Yeah. You are spot on. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great substitute uh, for a human head. Yeah. Um, so around that time, I started thinking about new ways, you know, to use the MR signal for uh, objective measurement that was biologically interesting. I got really interested in sort of the phase of the signal because iron is magnetically susceptible. So much like you know a paperclip, it's not magnetic on its own. But if you expose it to a magnet or a magnetic field, it becomes magnetized. You know, that's why you can pick up a paper clip with a magnet. Yeah. 
Um, Iron's also really interesting biologically uh, because it's involved in a lot of processes uh, in the brain. So hemoglobin, right, heme uh, in blood is rich in iron. So when you get small microbleeds in the brain, you're left with tiny iron depositions. Yeah. Uh, so while that's well known, I'd, I'd say at the time, better known in areas like traumatic brain injury, that you end up with these um, microbleeds. Uh, it was less well understood and very scientifically interesting in areas like Alzheimer's disease. So it had been debated for some time whether Alzheimer's is first and foremost a neurodegenerative condition or possibly also a vascular uh, condition. And around that time, actually, you know, microbleeds uh, were of great interest in Alzheimer's because some of the vaccine trials in Alzheimer's had been halted for causing microbleeds uh, in the brain. Um, so I got really interested scientifically in uh, neuroinflammation uh, in both sort of, I'd say, in neuro, neuroinflammation, bleeds, et cetera, in Alzheimer's, as well as multiple sclerosis. Uh, and that's because another rich iron source in the brain is macrophages. Uh, macrophages are basically the garbage collectors. Um, yeah. They gobbled up junk. Uh, they become rich in iron. So what we showed uh, is that in inflammatory lesions uh, uh, in the brain, like in MS, in multiple sclerosis, you could actually use the phase to trace the influx of iron to a lesion, to trace the inflammation days or weeks before it became visible by the other more commonly used methods. Like uh, most typically you inject tracer, like gadolinium into the blood and then see where it crosses the blood-brain barrier. And you get a nice bright you know, signal on the MRI. So I thought this was, you know, a really, what I loved about that work was sort of really seeing how you could take that combination of, you know, engineering of the coils and the pulse sequences, et cetera, with biology and bring those together to actually study human disease. Um, around that time, uh, I also uh, started working nights and weekends uh, at the biotech company Genentech. Uh, which was, uh, Genentech was just south of uh, UCSF in South San Francisco. And the phase imaging work was really interesting to Genentech uh, for, for their work on areas like Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis as well, um, particularly because it could be used both preclinically, non-destructively, and also clinically in, in human studies. So, you know, Genentech was really my first experience in pharma and opened my eyes to understanding sort of more of the molecular and, and cellular level of disease. But then from there, you actually went from um, doing your, your work there at Genentech to back to Stanford to join the biodesign program. So how did, how did that transition happen or why? Yeah, that was a really interesting transition. So uh, I'll, 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 yeah, I'll walk, walk you through that journey. So um, when I was at, uh, uh, when I was at, when I was doing work with Genentech, very, you know, interested in, very interested in these areas like, uh, Alzheimer's disease, um, I, I, uh, started, I started really learning a lot more about, um, cancer, about areas like gene therapy, uh, as well. Um, you know, in the world of, uh, uh Genentech, there's just incredible scientists. You know, you look at, um, Mark Tessier-Levine was then the head of R&D at Genentech. Uh, he left soon after. He's now president at Stanford. Um, Sue Desmond-Helmond was then the president of product development. You know, she went on to become um, chancellor of UCSF and the um, uh, and then eventually to the Bill and Gates, Melinda Gates Foundation, where she was just recently stepping down from her CEO role. 
And so I think what was really interesting to me at that time uh, was really sort of seeing how people from the more sort of pharmaceutical and biotech side were so focused on the cellular, um, the sort of cellular level understanding of biology that I got really interested in, um, in gene therapy. Around that time, uh, uh, Dr. Flip Sabies at UCSF was using, was interested in using 7T MRI to visualize exactly where a viral infusion into the brain went for the purpose of optogenetics. Uh, so he was wanting to basically transfect different uh, neuron, neuronal subtypes so that you could actually use different uh, lights, different colors of light, like a blue light and a, and a yellow light to excite different neuronal subtypes. Um, this is the field of, of optogenetics. And that was where I got started getting involved in neurostimulation because we were doing things like actually comparing the time course of um, biologic response to electrical versus optical stimulation. Yeah. Um, so around that time, a, a very fortunate email came in. Uh, you might enjoy this story. I was uh, sitting at home, literally. There's always an email or a phone call <laughs> and it everything up for us. So I was sitting at home one day uh, with uh, you know, a cup of tea and I was reading the biography of uh, Andy Grove. So Andy uh, is just an incredible, uh, you know, he's a, he was a Hungarian Jew. Um, when he was young, you know, the Nazis occupied Hungary. He had to take on a false identity. He lived through communism. He literally walked on foot into Austria when he was 20, barely speaking English, um, emigrated to New York. And fast forward, he was the CEO of Intel through its explosive years. I mean, he, he, he literally uh, created Silicon Valley. So I was reading this biography, just completely in awe of him. And I looked down at my phone, um, thinking generation-wise, it was probably an iPhone 2. And there was a simple email that said, Hi, Kate, would you like to meet for coffee? Andy Grove, Saras, S-A-R-U-S, with an address in Los Altos. And I literally thought this was so strange. I wondered if someone was playing a practical joke. Um, and I skeptically headed down to find him in a one-room office with a receptionist. And I nervously walked up to uh, shake his hand. And I'll never forget, he paused and he gave me a quizzical smile. And he said, I'm not sure if I should shake your hand or punch you in the stomach. I hear you need to, I need to toughen you up. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, it's so nice to meet you. I, I think I'll, I think I'll take the handshake. Uh, and you know, so began a uh, mentoring relationship that really forever sort of has think has impacted how I think about particularly management and innovation. Um, and this was actually what got me into the field of Parkinson's disease, because it turns out that I had two connections to Andy. Um, one was that uh, his Parkinson's foundation, called the Kinetics Foundation, um, had recently endowed a neurosurgery gene therapy lab at UCSF. Um, Andy had Parkinson's. It was quite pronounced uh, at that point. Uh, and he convinced me to join uh, Chris Bankovich's lab uh, as their first sort of an only, at the time, only in-house uh, engineer. So... Then the second piece, uh, um, the second way that I was connected into Andy was actually through the Grove Family Foundation. Uh, he had been considering giving a substantial donation to Berkeley to reimagine how we teach medical technology innovation and to do it with a highly scalable model. So unlike sort of the small fellowship or apprenticeship programs, to do it more like an MBA. 
Uh, and that actually became what now at Berkeley is a really terrific program uh, called the MTN, which is the Masters of Translational Medicine. And it basically teaches a lot of the um, innovate, innovation, you know, everywhere from sort of design practices through to, you know, biostatistics, through to um, regulatory and reimbursement uh, uh, classes, et cetera. So um, I started, and, and, and I, so I started working with Andy uh, on creating that program. Um, really, his his drive to reimagine medical innovation had actually come from when early in his earlier in his career, uh, he had prostate cancer, and uh, he actually landed. I remember on the um, in his office, he had the uh, the uh, the front page of a Fortune magazine, and he was uh, just outraged about how untransparent or inaccessible information on comparing the pros and cons of different treatment options was when he had, uh, when he had prostate cancer. And he basically said, if you compare, you know, the chip wars that led to the dramatic comp uh, competition between, you know, Intel and its competitors, you know, that was really what drove, I mean, what people call Moore's law, which is named for Intel's founder and Andy's predecessor in the CEO role, Gordon Moore. And Andy came into the field of medical innovation, basically saying, we need to do this too. We need to have, you know, objective measures by which we can compare, you know, different therapeutic options. And so I suppose I got connected with Andy sort of through those two uh, different paths of, you know, medical innovation and then of gene therapy and Parkinson's disease. Uh, and that was what sort of led to that coffee. Uh, and that was what... Uh, led me down to the, the role of uh, down, down into taking this postdoc that was in um, gene therapy. So what an amazing <laughs> story. And it's almost, you almost connect the Silicon Valley to biotechnology to bioelectronic medicine, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, you're probably the only person that I know of who actually has staggered the three kind of zones because I know people have transitioned from pharma into neuromodulation and, and otherwise, but this is the first time that somebody has transitioned from Silicon Valley or has connections through their life experiences to all the three uh, areas. Fantastic. <laughs> well, I, I like I like that positive framing. I, I think that there was a lot of moments where I was racked with self-doubt of, you know, my meandering decision making uh, in you know, where to pursue the next great innovation. So, uh, yeah. All, all the time. All the time. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, so, you know, at, at that time, even to that convergence of those fields, you know, Intel was working on doing um, objective motion-based sensing in Parkinson's. Uh, and at the same time, you know, at UCSF, we were working on, um, it was AAV2 GDNF. So basically taking the outer shell of a adeno-associated virus uh, to attach to brain cells and then using that to transfer the DNA sequence for a glial-derived neurotrophic factor. And I just thought it was so interesting sort of spanning these two worlds of, you know, uh, sensors and wearables and home monitoring uh, with sort of the world of uh, neurosurgery uh, and particularly, you know, comparing the electrical to the genetic uh, uh, different uh, interventions. You know, one other one other area I would add um, for you into sort of that convergence of the what I sort of see as the pharmaceutical medical device and tech industry um, is I was really fortunate during that postdoc to get a lot of exposure to corporate initiatives, um, really discovering the headaches of things like trying to bring together um, companies from those three spaces. So the, the GDNF gene license was from Amgen to a small company, um, pharma company called Amsterdam Molecular Therapeutics. 
We then were using modified equipment from deep brain stimulation implantation. So technologies from device companies with a custom built camera. And we were working with a Munich-based software company called BrainLab to do the predictive modeling and the real-time infusion tracking in an MRI scanner. So I even moved over to Munich uh, to work some time as a scientist in residence at Brain Lab in order to, you know, make that happen. Which is a fantastic city. I just love Munich. It is wonderful. Great beer gardens, too. (laughs) Which is what I was going to say. So, you know, it's really interesting thinking back on on it is, um, you know, when I started thinking about how to do innovation at that convergence, um, I actually really... uh, with, uh, you know, fast forward, this this initiative completely failed. Um, but uh, I tried to start a neurotech incubator at UCSF. Uh, I discussed that with then Chancellor Sue Desmond Hellman, who I knew from my previous work with Gen- Genentech. Uh, and I believed and, you know, I still believe that public universities really have a duty, um, a public service to free up the integration sort of of this convergence of drugs and devices and, and software. Um to really accelerate that, you know, early discovery work before getting hung up on things like the legal terms of downstream co-branding and distribution. So I think one of the things that was quite uh, uh, fortunate for me was that when it came to starting Cala to raising venture fin- financing, um, which includes several uh, strategic investors, uh, uh, it I had already sort of had a, uh, I don't know what to say, I'd already had a, a good um, uh, beating. I understood the headaches of doing uh convergence research across these multiple fields. So I think that, you know, in retrospect, when I look back at the documents that that um, Sue and I were discussing of the vision for that convergence into a neurotech incubator, sort of amazingly a few steps down the road, that actually became Health. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you to rate us on your podcast application. You started out, you have this rich history in pharma. You've clearly got the um, the business side of things dialed in quite a bit. How, how did you start looking at a non-pharmacological solution for essential tremor? It, I understand you have the engineering background and your mind thinks that way, but it doesn't seem like at that moment you were surrounded by people who were encouraging you to go in that direction. <laughs> So around that time, uh, I went back to Stanford uh, to do a second postdoc to uh, be a fellow in in the biodesign innovation program. Uh, around that time, uh, uh, my husband and I learned, actually, we learned I was pregnant with my first child. We thought we'd probably try to have a second soon after. And I thought, this is a really unique moment to do something different, ideally with a very flexible schedule for babies. Um, I remember, you know, I, I visited Biodesign when I was a week past my due date. I interviewed with a newborn, you know, in a tiny carrier, and then I started into the fellowship uh, straight after my maternity leave. Um, where Biodesign is really unique, I mean, where Essential Tremor was nowhere on my radar uh, at that time, uh, was that Biodesign is really steeped in the theory that true innovation comes from deep understanding of a need, so uh, needs-driven innovation. All new fellows start with months of observation in Stanford Hospital and clinics. Uh, The basic idea is that if you see a need once, you know it's at least a small need. If you see it 10 times, 100 times, you know it's a bigger need. 
And this is, I'd, I'd sort of emphasize there, this is very different from asking people what their needs are or reading reports on what other people say the needs are. Um, I, I think of it a lot, often with the, the great quote from uh, Henry Ford, who you know uh, was the inventor of the Model T, the first mass production automobile, who said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yeah. And it, <laughs> and it was really only by spending time observing that what people then really wanted actually was affordable, accessible mass transportation that he uh, focused on automobiles instead of on, you know, faster horses. I think of it on as sort of on radical innovation versus more incremental innovation. So as part of biodesign, you know, I followed around any doctor, nurse, back office billing practitioner willing to have me along. Um, and what really struck me was how many patients with hand tremor uh, did not have Parkinson's disease. I was very familiar with Parkinson's from my uh, from my neurosurgery postdoc work. And what I learned is that of the 8 million people in the U.S. who have hand tremors, 7 million of them have essential tremor. And it's only around 1 million that have the much more commonly known uh, Parkinson's disease. And many of the people with essential tremor are tremendously uh, impacted by it. So uh, Jojo, as you mentioned at the outset, um, about tremor, essential tremor originally being referred to as benign uh, non-Parkinsonian tremor. Um, you know, it used to be a, a sort of catch-all category. Um, when you meet these patients, I mean, I remember one gentleman in particular, you know, he was just tears streaming down his cheeks. He had, he had learned he was not a candidate for deep brain stimulation, a brain surgery that requires, you know, implanting a battery pack in the chest wall, running a lead wire up, you know, under the skin, through the skull, um, and then and then implanting a lead in the brain, and he wasn't a candidate for the the surgery, and he was just crying, saying how you know he couldn't write a note to his wife, he couldn't sign a check, he couldn't hold a cup of coffee. Um, it was just you know devastating his life, and I thought, you know, what if we could re-engineer the deep brain stimulation system? What if we could turn it on its head? where if you can run a wire into the ventral intermediate nucleus in the thalamus, into VIM, uh, and send an electrical pulse in, and that is incredibly effective in treating essential tremor. But the nervous system itself is a, a series of beautiful wires with really precise you know, connectivity between different regions. And in particular, we know the median nerve, which is accessible at the wrist, uh, right, right where it goes close to the carpal tunnel, um, the median nerve uh, was well known in neurophysiology work to uh, excite the ventral intermediate nucleus. So we came up with this idea of sort of reverse engineering the circuit. And instead of implanting a battery pack to stimulate the brain, instead, uh, in order to treat the hand, um, even though the symptom is present at the hand, it's caused by a central oscillatory uh, uh, signal in the, um, the central tremor circuit, the rubro-dentato thalamic circuit. And so what we realized is that potentially we could actually stimulate at the wrist to send a signal to the VIM to interrupt that same circuit as DBS uh, and use that to control the tremor non-invasively. Um, and we tried it and, and it worked. Um, yeah, so that, that, that is that is excellent, excellent segue to one of the questions that I've been wanting to ask you for a long time, Kate. Um, 
which is I think whenever people think of of medical devices, especially neuromodulation and clinical de-risking, I think this is a fantastic example of both reverse engineering as well as proving that a therapy works. So can you just shed a bit more light in those early days as to you said that the median nerve kind of connects directly uh, 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 to the brain region, uh, the, the, the thalamus. And then how did you demonstrate that stimulation of the median nerve actually produces the silencing of the excitatory patterns in the thalamus? Did you actually measure it in the brain during brain surgery to demonstrate that that is indeed happening? I mean, that'll be fantastic for people to listen because that ultimately it's a mechanism-driven therapy uh, that, you, that you've kind of developed at Cala. So it'll be fantastic for people to understand that type of innovation because people are not usually used to talking about that because most people who are un, who are not exposed to neuromodulation they think it's it's science fiction it's still voodoo it's it's changing in a in a great way but it'll be fantastic to hear somebody who has developed a product say how they de, how they deal with the therapy well it's my deep belief that the field of neuromodulation is uh, um, i actually think of neuromodulation as electrical medicine. You know, there's many ways for us to interact with the body. The body communicates both chemically and electrically. So exactly as you're saying, we've taken a very scientific approach at Cala, a very mechanistic driven approach to actually understanding uh, how our stimulation affects the underlying physiology and using that to then build the the therapies uh, themselves. Um, So the place we started, um, actually coming out of the, the, the background that I came from of more uh, gene therapy and implanted stimulation work, uh, where typically we would go, you know, preclinical into clinical studies. Um, what was really unique about starting Cala uh, was that we could go directly into human proof of concept um, because we were doing non-invasive stimulation. So at the time, I actually thought that Cala was more likely to be an implant company than a um, than a surface stimulation company. Uh, I'd been working at the time uh, uh, during my biodesign fellowship. I did consulting work at Autonomic Technologies with Ben Pless. Um, ben is really one of the leading you know pioneers in neuromodulation. He's also incredibly bright and kind. Um, he's full of you know firsts in neuromodulation. If you look back at you know he founded Ventratex. Uh, which did some of the first implantable cardiac, you know, defibrillators, uh, ultimately was bought by St. Jude. He did the first closed loop stimulators at Neuropace uh, in epilepsy, where he was the CEO, uh, sorry, COO and CTO. Um, and then uh, at ATI, it was the first transcutaneously powered uh, implant, treating this palatine ganglion uh, under the cheekbone for the treatment of headache. So through that work with Ben, uh, I really believed in, um, and, and I, I got involved in work with Ben because I had the skill set to do image guided, um, image guided uh, placement uh, of devices from my work in uh, gene therapy MRI. So basically, uh, so I was imagining that the goal of our need we'd identified through that patient observation, looking for a way to reduce hand tremors uh, in patients with essential tremor in order to restore their ability to eat, drink, and write without brain surgery in people who are non-responsive to drugs. And so my first idea was, well, let's actually not do it in the brain. Let's do an implant in the arm. Then we said, well, that means we actually have to, uh, you know, uh, do a study of implants. But hey, these nerves pass right by the surface of the skin. We want to stimulate the median and radial nerves um, at the wrist 
And so we sort of stepped back scientifically, as was Scott Delp and I, uh, and said, let's do surface stimulation. Let's do benchtop studies to really optimize the waveform and understand that response. As a scientist, I'd say when I really knew we had something was when we uh, um, went to our, our what we call our TAPS uh, waveform. It's basically a waveform that alternates between the two nerves at the frequency of the patient's tremor. So if someone has a slow tremor, it's typically essential tremor is about four to 12 hertz. At four hertz, we alternate between the nerves at four hertz. And if they have a fast tremor, like 12 hertz, we alternate at 12 hertz. Um, and, so, uh, and so when we started doing that waveform, what we saw was that when we turned off the stimulator, the person's tremor didn't come back for about an hour. And we saw that reproducibly and consistently. And that's when we really stepped back and said, you know, this is really interesting. We're actually modulating the circuit. Um, and with this really, you know, interesting time course. Out of that, um, when we raised the Series A, I believe we had about 11 patients of uh, human clinical data. Um, we also then managed to uh, 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 convince um, a number of, you know, leading academic uh, mechanistic uh, uh, researchers to really work with us on understanding how this was working. So, you know, Cal is now working, fast forward to today, you know, we work with um, uh, Mayo, University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, uh, you know, University of Washington, the NIH, on really proving out the basic mechanism. You know, Arun, exactly as you were asking about, um, one of the ways we do that is we just pull um, data directly out of the VIM during deep, deep brain stimulation uh, implantation surgery. So when the surgeons have the microelectrodes in, it's a really beautiful clinical setup uh, to actually test uh, the different um, waveforms and their optimization uh, in order to deliver the best, the best therapy. So I think that that was really, you know, that was how the company got started. I, I actually was not convinced I wanted to do a startup. I thought we would keep this longer in academia, um, maybe bring in some grants to develop it further before spinning it out. And then uh, um, on my second maternity leave, uh, I got a call from Biodesign saying, you know, we have a number of uh, executives here from uh, Johnson Johnson. Could you please come in and uh, give a presentation? And I said, you know, sure. I brought down my little newborn baby again, <laughs> um, and uh, I gave a I gave a presentation on sort of this vision of uh, prescription electrical medicines, and starting with the field of essential tremor. Uh, and uh, Renee Ryan uh, was there, who was at was then then at Johnson Johnson Development Corporation. Fast forward, she is now the CEO here at Cala. Um, but when we met was then, and she said, "I think that this is really interesting." Uh, I basically said thank you and ran out with my baby. <laughs> she followed me out and said, "No, I think this is really interesting." Um, and, you know, within a couple of weeks, I had a Series A term sheet that was co-led by uh, JJDC and Lux Ventures, um, Lux Capital. And, uh, and you know, she uh, convinced me that it was exactly the right time in life to start a company. Um, and, you know, we were off and running. That's fantastic. I think your, your kind of uh, statement about matching the signals, 4 hertz and 12 hertz, kind of reminded me of, of walking from the kitchen with a, with a, with a cup full of hot tea. And then trying to match my footsteps to actually the vibration of the tea moving in the teacup. And you only don't spill if you match your vibrations to the, the movement of the fluid in the teacup. So I was alerted to this in, in a very interesting kind of snippet in one of the local newspapers, which I did not realize until then, but which is what it reminded me of. 
Arun, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and say most people do not study their walking with their teacup that way, and that I'm I'm just gonna say I love you for your strength. Try it the next time. If you have a cup full of tea, if you people say walk slowly, but walking slowly is not the thing. You have to match the vibration of of the of the fluid level in the teacup to your motion, and it absolutely works. I've tried it so many times. <laughs> We, we had a debate in my household over uh, whether it was more efficient, basically, to sort the silverware on coming out of the dishwasher into the drawers, or whether it was more efficient and then and then set the table, or whether it was more efficient just to put it unsorted and then sort out onto the table. And so the family took a, you know, with a stopwatch competition of the two different modes. Turns out it's faster to sort on the way out of the dishwasher, which is probably why that's you know, many people sort that that way. So, or you could do it my way, which is sort when you put it into the dishwasher. Oh, that's- but that requires that the rest of the family follows suit, which it doesn't always. We'll have, to, we'll have to rerun our blinded and controlled randomized clinical trial. <laughs> coming up, I think that's that's the new, the new contest. So, I'm assuming you started out with Cala One. And then what we have now is Calatrio. I'm going to guess there was a Calados or Caladue <laughs> somewhere in between. Can you tell us a little bit about that iteration process and, and especially as your first device company and moving out of Yeah, academia? sure. So uh, you're right. There was a, uh, there was a Cala2. Um, that was one of the uh, steps along our uh, journey to launching our first product. Um, the I can t- tell you about sort of how we went from that Series A uh, to where we are today. So um, we raised the first round, and the goal of that was uh, um, that was about a three and a half million dollar round. And the goal of that was really uh, clinical proof of concept and building the first uh, uh, the first devices. So this was our Cala One, <laughs> um, and then we raised a Series B. And the goal of the so on on that first study on that first uh, round of funding, we ran our first RCT. And we saw really compelling uh, clinical evidence. Uh, it was still at that time using sort of a modified benchtop stimulator system. Um, but we ran a nice blinded study and we very clearly showed uh, that patients who received the, uh, the therapeutic treatment mode versus the sham treatment mode uh, had substantially improved tremor reduction. Um, we then raised the Series B. Uh, and that was the goal of that round was really to get the uh, regulatory clearance uh, needed to bring this new therapy forward. We are on the de novo pathway, which is a pathway for devices that are um, lower risk than uh, um, they don't require a PMA. They're not, you know, class class um, three. These are class two devices, um, but where there is no predicate. So there's no other device that you can just say, you know, we're similar to that device and go down the 510K pathway. So the de novo pathway, you know, typically requires clinical uh, um, evidence. So we ran another RCT. We built our devices. Um, we ran another uh, randomized clinical trial uh, on the, this was now a fully integrated wrist-worn device that, for example, did all of the um, individual calibration on board the device um, as a closed system. Um, so we submitted that uh, evidence to the FDA and we received our uh, de novo clearance. So we created a new reg in the code of you know, federal regulations uh, that was for a, uh, a upper limb tremor stimulator. At that point, we raised our Series C, um, which was a, a 50 million round that we closed last year. Um, and that was really to commercialize our first device. 
And that series C, just to jump in, because I don't think you're going to toot your own horn on, on this one. I remember that series very spectacularly because you closed, and I believe it was oversubscribed, your series C, the very same week that Neuralink was closing a similar size round where they underperformed. They've since made it up, but you oversubscribed at the very same minute they undersubscribed. And I, I remember that being significant. You know, we've been, I've just been so thankful to have incredible uh, investors all along this journey. So, you know, from, from that series A, you know, with Renee, who, as you can imagine, we have a tremendously positive relationship that we ultimately, you know, I was thrilled for her to come in into the uh, CEO role just uh, that was after the series C, just before we launched our first product. Um, when we look at the set of investors that we lined up, one of the things we did that I think was a little uh, different for the industry, but I'd really encourage uh, budding engineers out there to consider which is we heavily um, we heavily sort of favored strategic investors. So in the Series A, we brought in JJDC. In the Series B, we brought in both um, additional pharma investors, so GlaxoSmithKline and Novartis. We also brought in tech investors. So we also brought in Google Ventures and Qualcomm on, on the hardware side. And what was really interesting about that is it created a, a just a tremendously positive board dynamics around how do we all, you know, link arms, scrape our knees, fail fast, integrate, um, take a very diverse uh, sort of innovation approach where we could simultaneously pursue basic scientific mechanism work around these how these therapies are working with being able to tap into things like really sort of first-in-class user experience design. Um, and that set us up in really great shape for our Series C as well. You know, all of the um, uh, it, the previous investors, you know, participated uh, in the Series C. Um, and then we brought in, you know, some really uh, uh, fantastic new investors uh, as well. That's that's great. So I think there is one other question that we want to ask you, which is about the Canada kind of business model or the commercial model at this point of time, which is also very, very unique. Uh, in a world where the implantable devices, especially we talk about DBS, deep brain stimulation, spinal cord stimulation, and many others are prescribed by the physician. They get implanted by the physician in the hospital and everybody goes home. You actually have a very different, almost direct to patient model, uh, if, if that is the right terminology, uh, to actually say the physician actually writes a prescription, but that prescription sort of going like in the case of a, of a pharmaceutical, it goes to the pharmacy for dispensing. It actually comes to Cala, I assume, for for ultimately uh, the device to directly go, just like the way uh, any other kind of wearable technology goes to the end user uh, from the manufacturer. Tell us a bit more about why you went with that unique model uh, and why not with the traditional commercialization model. People would be, it would, People would love to hear that. So to walk you through uh, that journey, let's actually go back to literally day one of Cala. So day one of Cala, uh, we did two things. Number one, we put in place our uh, quality management system. And number two, we actually opened a clinic. And I'm a deep believer that to do truly needs-driven innovation, you have to deeply understand the needs of everyone who will interact with your therapy. So we opened a clinic. It's basically a sort of, a, a, it's co-located with Cala. Um, it is a clinical site um, for running everything from basic neurophysiology uh, studies to kind of some of the earliest uh, pilots. It's, you know, it, um, it, it has uh, um, 
nurses, uh, uh, external uh, PIs, uh, physicians who oversee the studies in the clinic. And we set ourselves a goal very early on of having at least a patient and a, a provider or a caregiver in the clinic every day. You know, likewise, as the team grew, um, I really did my best to make sure that every new employee spent some time in the clinic, really getting to know our patients and the doctors who prescribe their therapy. Um, what we realized through that very hands-on experience as we designed the therapy uh, is that there is a really, uh, there's there's a great place for a more direct sort of consumer-centric model. So when we looked at things like distribution, right, most devices that are devices that are used in the home, like uh, home oxygen devices, I think would be a good example, um, go through distributors. And to me, the big downside of distributors from a patient lens is that it means that the person who you're calling or the person you're interacting with, with your, about your technology oftentimes doesn't deeply know your technology. There's sort of a middleman in between that. And so I still remember the day when we had a whiteboard and uh, it was basically trying to figure out which type of distributors to work with. Do we go specialty pharma? Do we go durable medical equipment? And we kind of stepped back and said, why don't we be the distributor? And, you know, the initial reaction that I got was sort of a, of course, a no. Um, and as I usually do when I hear no, I, you know, ask why and just kept asking why. And what we started to realize is there really, we can be the distributor. Um, and so we're a manufacturer and a distributor. And what that does is it actually um, allows the patient and the physicians who are prescribing our therapy an entirely seamless experience. We, as you were walking through, we can directly receive the prescription from the doctor. Um, not surprisingly, during COVID, during you know this pandemic, the uh, the prescriptions shifted dramatically to coming in by via um, predominantly telemedicine, whereas prior to the pandemic, they were predominantly from in-person visits. We then receive that prescription. We drop ship product to the patient, and then we have a, a success team that actually trains and uh, interacts with the patient, supporting them through every stage of their journey. One other small piece that I, I sort of skipped over earlier is that the motion sensors on board the device that we use to calibrate the therapy, we also use those same motion sensors to measure the tremor level before and after each dose of stimulation. So, for example, in a recent study we ran that was 263 patients use it at 26 sites. They use therapy twice daily for three months. We got almost 22,000 data points of efficacy because we measured every dose by every patient. And as you can imagine, that kind of data, that objective physiology data, is really beautiful for building on a lot of the artificial intelligence, machine learning type networks um, that really can help support each patient in their journey. That's one of the other reasons that we believe that we couldn't have a fractured model where the data sat in one place and the hardware sat in another, and then sort of you had the prescribing physician and then you had the patient. Um, and so one of the things that we loved about starting in the essential tremor market is that it's a very... Uh, it's a sort of, I'd say, growing, but currently um, not especially competitive market because there's nothing for these patients. They basically can take drugs that for most patients don't work, or they can have brain surgery, either deep brain stimulation or more recently, uh, MR-guided focused ultrasound, a, a technology I'm also quite excited about. Um, and so what's really beautiful sort of in the essential tremor space is we could start building this up, this direct model, um, doing things like testing. And we're, we're, we're a scientifically oriented company. We thought of market launch as an RCT. So we take the different markets and we run slightly different um, tweaks on the business model. And then we compare the results that come out of that model. Um, and we continue to, you know, refine uh, sort of our, our solution that way. My hope is that this 
business model actually becomes one of the core business models for the, you know, prescription non-invasive bioelectronics more as a whole, uh, and that we can bring that over into other areas where they would have been very competitive and challenging to start with such a different model. And I think that's something that entrepreneurs should really look for is where are these um, sort of blue ocean opportunities where you can you can afford to take a bigger leap. Yeah, this is such a forward-looking idea. This is this is this is exactly why I think Cala is one of the pioneering companies because you're not just thinking of just pre- making a device to treat a condition, but you're also trying to kind of make it such that it improves the life of patients, but also trying to bring in new models, both in innovation as well as commercial commercialization, to kind of make that happen. So that's fantastic to hear. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun talking through the history that got here because I hadn't really put together the pieces of how those different experiences in those industries kind of felt then natural to just converge to pick the best parts and put them together. So I I know a lot of people are are really excited about this and your U.S. um, launch has been really successful. How are people outside of the U.S. going to be able to get access to the Cala Trio? So currently it is only commercially available uh, in the U.S., um, uh, but, you know, as the company grows, uh, we'll expand overseas. So I can't I can't sort of sub in for somebody and 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 help them get access sooner. (laughs) No, but we're always uh, we're always uh, looking, uh, you know, looking for great uh, partners and and thinkers on that journey. So please send anyone my way if you have them in mind. (laughs) We'll definitely do that. Uh, at least from Europe, from my side. Welcome. (laughs) Well, this has been an absolute joy to walk through with you. I'm so grateful to have you on and we're really excited. You want to, before we close out quickly, is there anything you want to tell us? I'm sure there's a lot of confidential progress being made, um, but is there anything you can tell us in broad terms about next steps for Cala? Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the areas we were really excited to announce just about a week ago uh, was that we have just received breakthrough designation from the FDA in Parkinson's disease. Um, so we'll be, you know, working with the agency to bring forward uh, um, the the action tremor therapy, uh, the, the, the wrist-worn treatment for essential tremor uh, into other indications. You know, I think that that actually really points to how we think about uh electrical medicines from much more of a pharmaceutical approach, as in what is the physiology that we are treating? Now, how do you treat that physiology even sometimes across multiple indications? We also have other work ongoing, you know, in fields like uh, psychiatry and cardiology, and certainly hope to do our best that we can in serving those patients and and keeping at this uh, through bringing therapies forward for them as well. That's wonderful, Kate. Thank you so much. I think that's been a fantastic kind of revisiting i hope for you and for us uh, for us we're actually hearing it for the first time and uh, in terms of the various facets of your personality and the journey that you've taken uh, to where you are today uh, it's it's super useful it's incredibly insightful for for many people who actually are starting off in in neuromodulation uh, in the space and it's it's wonderful to, for you to actually share all of your experiences with us thank you so much for doing it. Well, thank, and thank you for all your work on uh, this terrific uh, podcast. I really enjoyed listening to your episodes and look forward to listening to what's coming up next. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, 
Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay, okay, okay.